Hey everybody, this is Jen Kleinhens. And I'm Rob Vose. And you're listening to another episode of Everybody Hates Your Brand, a podcast where we talk about our thoughts and opinions on marketing, from customer experience to brand, and everything in between. Join us today as we talk about what makes IKEA great. So yes, welcome to episode 15. Uh, as Jen has said, we are going to be discussing a specific brand, a brand that has come up a lot uh, in the previous 14 episodes. It's been mentioned a few times. This and Peloton, basically. It's not Peloton. It's not Peloton, obviously, as obviously, you've got the from the title. title. Although <laughs> it will we, be next time. Yeah, we, yeah, we don't suggest uh, that we're not going to do this again. So the idea for this came actually from a, a YouTube channel we watch, a chap called Rick Beato, who's a music producer and a musician. And uh, he has a series called What Makes This Song Great, where he takes a particular song uh, and breaks it down. So the melody, the drums, the guitars, the bass, the, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and, and how they all fit together and work together with musical arrangements. He says, talking about music with a professional musician in the room. But anyway, um, and and kind of tries to deconstruct what makes a song great. We'll link mm-hmm. to the channel because there's some really good stuff on there. Um, and we thought, well, well, why couldn't we apply that to brands as an idea? Um, so this is the first one. Uh, and the first one we're going to be talking about is IKEA. Um, I can't believe there isn't anybody who knows who, who doesn't know who IKEA are. But just in case you don't know, they are a Swedish... Uh, although global, but uh, starts in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Furniture company. Yes. Basically, home it, furniture, kitchen stuff like yes. home, home. What's the? I mean, what? So they sell ready-to-assemble furniture, appliances, and home accessories. They started go. in 1943. I have notes. I'm not just. Indeed, I, I don't know. just. And Jennifer know all is going to kind of. Uh, we have a conversation here, but Jennifer's going to kind of lead it a little bit yes. because she has written a few few articles on IKEA and one that was really well received, which really surprised me. Mm-hmm. Um. Sometimes you write these articles and you're like, oh, whatever. This is like, I'll just throw it off. I wrote it in a couple hours. And this one, I don't know, viral is not the right word. No. But a lot of people really liked it. It got like 500 likes across yeah. various social channels and stuff, which for me is a lot. That's pretty good. So um, I'm, I'm going to hand over to Jen yeah. and I will chip in when I have something relevant to say. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I would like to lay this on the line, by the way, because when I was doing research for these articles, I was very perplexed. Is IKEA capital I, capital K, capital uh-huh. E, capital A, or is IKEA capital I, lowercase K-E-A? It's all caps, isn't it? It's all caps because it's a... Acronym. Acronym, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, the question is whether it's an morning. acronym or an initialism. So, what is the difference? What is an initialism? So if I remember rightly, and I've got this from Mark Razzle, friend of the podcast. Yes. Uh, and I had no idea. I didn't know about this until like five years ago when he mentioned it at DDB. Okay. And he said that essentially an acronym is something that spells another word or another thing. So oh. like if you t- it's a bit of Marvel geek, SHIELD is an acronym. For, should for example. he... But, G- but for example, uh, say mm. GDPR would be an initialism. Because it's not a you word. Can't say it. It's not a word. Well, is that, I don't know if I, IKEA is a Swedish word. It could no. be. It could mean meatballs in Swedish. I I don't know. And I'm glad that we're delving into the really important. <laughs> so <laughs> really we're going to talk a lot about meatballs today. Of of IKEA meatballs, with the with meatballs. whether it's capitals or not, um, mm-hmm. an, an acronym or initialism. But there yes. you go. So what um, does it stand for? Uh, very long Swedish words that I well, we could probably get. Ingvar Kamprad who started it, isn't it? The IK. And yes, then... Ingvar Kamprad, I believe is how. I'm you so sorry his name. to anybody, and we do have a couple of people who've downloaded in Sweden. I am genuinely sorry. I will say for too, any 
awful mispronunciations we make. I was very impressed because like when I put this article up, I, sometimes when I read an article, I'll put it in a couple of Facebook groups or LinkedIn mm-hmm. groups or whatever, just selfishly to drive traffic. And there were a couple of Swedish people who commented on stuff and added things about Ikea. I had no idea. Fantastic. Like different like words they have for different sort of like click and carry out and things like that that Ikea does that I had I would have never known had they not gone on and Brilliant. been so passionate about. Well, thank you. Ikea. Thank, thank you, nameless commenters. Yeah. Um, but yes, so basically it started as sort of um, this guy had this vision to bring interior design to the masses. And as you all probably know, Ikea furniture is, is flat-packed. It's what we would call flat-packed. I'll be honest, I'd never heard the word flat-packed until I came to the UK. So in the US, you know Ikea furniture. It's just a Self-assembly. Box. Yeah, you just assemble it yourself. And interestingly enough, um, there is actually a behavioral science principle called the Ikea effect. So clearly when I wrote these articles about the psychology of Ikea mm-hmm. and why it works so well, that is the first thing I had to pick. So if you don't know what the Ikea effect is... Basically, it says that people attribute more value to a product they've helped to create. So this idea of like co-creation. Mm. And the one of the authors of this study is Dan Ariely. Ariely? Mm-hmm. I can never say his name right. I should probably figure that out. Predictably irrational author, yes. Yes, he's the predictably yeah. irrational guy. Um, he's also was at Duke and Harvard and a couple other places. I believe they did this research at Harvard okay. when he was there. But he named the study, like the subtitle was Labor Leads to Love, which I think is a great just little... Summary, it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. So you work on something, you like it more. And basically their their experiment came from IKEA assembly. They didn't just randomly name it after IKEA. So they when they did the test, they gave two groups uh, IKEA boxes. One group had a fully assembled version of whatever piece of furniture chair they gave them. And the other group was given unassembled boxes, which they were then told to put together. Mm-hmm. And the second group was willing to pay much more for their box during a subsequent bidding process than those who just got a pre-assembled box. So, in other words, you put a little bit of yourself into something, it makes you want to interact with it more. But I knew about, so I knew about this next bit, but the second bit I did not know. So there is a whole sort of cottage industry around what's called IKEA hacks. Hmm. There's like IKEAhacks.com and all these different places you can go where people have taken that co-creation one step further. So they said, oh, well, not only can I assemble this table, mm-hmm. um, I can assemble this table and I can use some different things I find at the ha- hardware store to make it like a different color mm-hmm. or to add a different feature to it or whatever. So Ikea hacks are a big thing. I've never hacked Ikea first. It's kind myself. of like, I don't know, <clears throat> like like this created this ecosystem of like apps, you know, like a tech company, you have mm-hmm. a, the backbone of a particular... PC games is a good example, but they have a backbone of a PC game, and you get all these people creating mods yeah. to improve, change, yeah, exactly. it's a mod. the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a physical um, mod. Yeah. But there's also, I did not know this, that there are spin-off businesses that design accessories to augment IKEA furniture. Yeah. So, one of the the companies that I discovered during the research for this article was um, a company called Semi Handmade out of the U.S. So it's all one word. If you want to check it out, we'll link to it in the show notes. But actually, they make custom doors that are compatible with IKEA cabinets. So like. This is a difference between like the U.S. and Europe that I've really found. I've never seen an Ikea kitchen in the wild looking for houses for sale, friends with houses. Mm. Like it, It's probably more common in a place like New York City or something where it's small mm. and compact. But if you come to the U.K., like Rob and I were looking mm. for a house, that's a whole other story, for quite some time, um, <laughs> over a year. The story that still <clears> has still no looking. End. Yeah. yeah. Still looking. Uh, I would say 
80% of the kitchens we saw were Ikea kitchens. I don't a think... A lot of them, certainly. Yeah, I mean... Well, the flat that I, we're I renting has, a, has an Ikea kitchen. Yeah, the flat that we're renting has mm. an Ikea kitchen. And basically, you know, because they have... And this we'll talk about this in a second. But because Ikea has limited, like, the amount of products that they have and the series mm. that they do, and, and they've standardized a lot of things, you can have a company like Semi Handmade that says, like, okay, if you have, um, you know, this particular mm. set of cabinets, like, you might... The, the configuration might be slightly different, mm-hmm. but if the cabinets are already installed and you just want to like zhuzh it up a little bit, then you can get these um, custom doors yeah. on top of the IKEA stuff. And because you know, in in the U.S., I'm sure there's a fair amount, but like in Europe especially, there's a ton. It's a nice way to get sort of like a custom kitchen look mm. without ripping it, everything out. It's kind of in a way, again, another example parallel, like car mods. So you yeah. know, if you buy a particular car, there are aftermarket kits, different things you can do. Like if you buy a Beamer, you can get different things, different front ends, different you know to customize it to your. It's really clever in that yeah. in that regard that you mm-hmm. kind of just you can keep the bones mm-hmm. and completely refresh it by, you know, taking off the doors yeah. and putting some new ones on and things like that. Well, it's an interesting. It's an interesting thought too because you know, the reason that I noticed that so many of the houses that we looked at here. And continue to look at, like, online mm-hmm. and stuff, have Ikea kitchens is because they look identical, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, you can spot an Ikea kitchen. Once you know it's Ikea, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I've seen this five or six times because it does look very mm-hmm. similar. But I think this is a good way to have something that's a little bit like, oh, that's a little that's a little different. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the same. Same but different. using the same bones, yeah. Right. Um, so, interestingly, uh, in terms of, like, how the Ikea effect or this co-creation effect has helped grow the brand um mm-hmm. so there is an advertising agency or consulting firm depending on how you want to classify it uh in london called iris so i-r-i-s mm-hmm. they may have some i think they do have some offices in the u.s but i think their headquarters are here in, in uh london and they've created something called a brand participation or participation brand index sorry and basically um according to their research which take it all with a grain of salt because there's a lot of self-selected research mm-hmm. running around and um ad agencies and consulting firms and things. Um, Businesses that encourage co-creation with customers outperform their competition. So according to Iris, Mm. they said, if you had invested in the top 20 brands in the participation brand index over three years, they would have seen 4X, so 400%, higher return on investment than investing in brands at the bottom of the ranking. Now, again, I'm going to caveat this with... given we went that whole episode about self-selection and the whole episode about brand purpose everybody read the halo effect that was the halo effect will crack your mind open and and you will just see things in a very different way uh but the second thing that they the point that they made because i listen i don't want to as far as i could tell it seemed like a okay Mm -hmm. process but according to them investing in the top 10 brands in the participation brand index over three years would yield a return 2x so 200 percent higher than the s&p 500 average Mm -hmm. so the s&p being the big one mm-hmm. absolutely uh yes so I, I think you know that's that's something you can't really mention ikea without kind of going into like the psychological effect no. around yeah. why people love it so and much. let's not forget that there's an economic reason too mm-hmm. which is getting people to build their own stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> is cheap means you can do it sell it cheaper yeah and it means you can store more stuff in one spot yes because well, of course the volume is so much economies you know, of scale smaller in terms of you know a desk in a flat pack mm-hmm. is a lot smaller than a desk when it's <laughs> built yeah. as well so it's kind of a nice confluence of practical and psychological stuff mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think it's interesting that uh, you talk about that so it, in terms of like behavioral science or psychology it's it's talking about the choice overload effect or mm-hmm. the choice paradox um this idea that like some choice is good 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but too much choice is not good. So if you look at all the research, I'm summarizing a lot here. But basically, like, if you have a few things to, to choose from. So, for instance, like, a lot of IKEA furniture is gray, black, white, and oak. They mm-hmm. have that, like, fake oak-looking mm-hmm. stuff. Some things come in, like, blue or green or red or whatever, but it's kind of few and far between. Limited. Yeah. yeah. So it's a limited choice, which is good in a way. Um, there is some... There is some relatively strong research around this idea of like cho- choice overload mm-hmm. and this idea that if you have a lot of choices, people will browse. So a lot of choices is like peacock feathers, right? It's mm-hmm. like, oh, look, I can go in and I can look at every single thing. But if all of a sudden you look at every single sweater and every single sweater has comes in mm-hmm. 50 colors, that, that's too many. It's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And people are more likely to kind of you know, pull the trigger on a sale if there's fewer choices. Yes. Um, and in, in fact, according to research from Episerver, uh, and I'm sure there's other, if you guys know any other research mm-hmm. around this, but this is what I found. 46% of customers have failed to complete a purchase due to overwhelming choice. And that is self-identified. Mm-hmm. So imagine how many people have just yeah. not chosen anything and not known that's the reason. Well, I mean, we went into this, we did a podcast about behavioral science, didn't we? Yes. And one of, this is one of the big effects that we talked about. So yes. there's a lot more detail in there, but I think it's, you're absolutely right. There's, there is a certain... Uh, there's a certain it sort of sets a certain expectation if i go to ikea i know i'm going to be able to just get Mm -hmm. uh, like it creates a certainty and everything matches Mm. in your house and 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 again from from their perspective i doubt they did it with that psychological thing Mm -hmm. in mind yes but from their perspective it was it's a cost economic Mm -hmm. economies of scale we can produce lots of different you know Mm -hmm. we've got one of those shelving units downstairs that are just square ones it's a four we've got four by four one Mm mm-hmm which I think most of Jen's annoyance has is all my CDs and DVDs and Blu-rays. Yes, I still buy physical media. Um, and uh, But, you know, there's millions of different versions of those, mm-hmm. you know, different sizes. And But there's mm-hmm. only, I think it's white, as you said, white, oak, black, and whatever it was. Yeah. So the economies of scale they can get by reusing parts, reusing different things and keeping mm-hmm. things simple was probably where it started from. And then yeah. they're happy. They've realized, well, if we, we can't add too much. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, it's interesting that you know, I was reading through a couple of articles. It didn't end up in my articles, but I found an interesting point around how they design their furniture. They actually decide on the price point first. Do they really? Yes, because Why? value is such a big part of their brand that they make a decision that this is going to cost however many euro or dollars or whatever. And then mm. they figure it out from there. So it could be that you've got something that's cheap to produce and maybe it comes in five colors instead of two because they can they afford the variety of product. But um, just the other the other point around sort of sorry uh, decision and choice. So Procter and Gamble, uh, mm-hmm. so the big old CPG or FMCG, depending mm-hmm. on where you're from, uh, company found that a decrease in the variety of head and shoulder shampoos resulted in a ten percent increase in revenue. And a mm-hmm. lot of in the wild sort of like live brand research is found. If you have fewer varieties of a brand, a lot of times it'll increase sales because people. Mm. Again, we'll we'll pull the trigger on a sale versus just kind of standing there and thinking like, oh no, what if I make the wrong choice? Mm-hmm. I'd rather make a different choice than the wrong choice in this particular uh, choice set. Cool. I wish toothpaste manufacturers would bear that in mind. Uh, toothpaste manufacturers are. Does, um, I mean, like on a different planet. Yeah. Anyway. With razor ra- manufacturers. Yeah. Yeah. Eight razors. Yes. Okay. So what else have you got in terms of their success? And what drives their success? Well, listen, I think it would be remiss of me to not talk about... Oh, I know where this is going. Swedish meatballs. Yes. Yeah. Um, and listen, I have always... I, I don't know if I've always wanted to eat in an Ikea because mm-hmm. I feel like 
this this is less about you and I, but in other relationships, because you know you tend to if you've seen IKEA couples. Mm-hmm. This is not in any of my research. This is just observational. It's anecdotal data. It's true. Um, it's anecdotal. <laughs> but if you go into IKEA, a lot of times it's like they've dropped the either they've dropped the kids into like the play kid area or yeah. whatever, or they don't have kids. Usually it's that. Like in the U.S., I've noticed is like younger and they're like yeah. city dwelling, yeah. you know, um, couples mm-hmm. who inevitably. At the beginning, the you know the usually the female in the couple is like, mm. oh look at this, look at that, and for the first like I don't know first stage of IKEA, mm-hmm. you sort of see the male partner go like, oh yeah okay, trying maybe to you engage, match with this. By the time they make it to the second or the third one, it's either mm-hmm. an all out argument about everything, or it's a oh you think this rug like that thing, and they're just an eye roll and they'll just a uh, I don't know, and you know they just just do not care, they're tapped out. What but earth are you we. We, we're, I think, much better, but a lot of times by the time you get to oh. the cafeteria in Ikea, which is like in the middle of the experience, if I, I don't think there's anything worse I could ask than for me to ask Rob to, please, mm-hmm. can I experience Swedish meatballs one time in this Ikea? Well, now I just feel like a it's, monster. It's like the Costco hot dog. I always want the Costco hot dog, and I always look at it and I'm like, it's a legendary like business thing. I'm going to get this Costco hot dog if you don't know. Costco has kept, like, the price of their hot dog and a soda, like, consistent since they opened, like, in the yeah. 60s. This is, like, a buck 25 or whatever, or a pound 50 year, I think. But <clears throat> I always want it, and I never get it. So, like, well, Swedish that, meatballs are not, the hot dog to Costco. That's never my fault. No, I know, but that, that one's never your fault. But I do also feel like by the time we're done with Costco, you, like, want to get out. Well, who doesn't? I mean... Me! I like Costco. Oh. I mean, anyway, now it's a little different given <laughs> all the... <laughs> the precautions that you have to take in store and everything. Is, but yes. one day I will eat a Costco hot dog. And one day I will eat and I will eat a meatball. Where we live in the UK, mm-hmm. um, there is a Costco and an Ikea within two junctions on the motorway. Uh, or freeway, yes. however you want to describe that. Uh, two the exits on the interstate. <laughs> two exits on the interstate, yeah. But two, two junctions on the motorway. So one day we'll... I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this on the record. What? But we will go to IKEA and you can eat your nonsense meatballs, and then I just I don't want to know, try them. We'll they could go be then terrible. To, and have have the hot dog. Anyway, why is the food important? Sorry, though? the food is important. <laughs> I th- I think for a few reasons, right? So, did you know that IKEA is actually the tenth largest food retailer in the world? So, like, if you talk about like big competitors of IKEA, they might be places like you know Burger King or McDonald's or mm-hmm. whatever. Like people. So again, anecdotally. A lot of people I've talked to or read in articles who have kids will say, my kids always ask me to go to Ikea and eat the meatballs. Mm. That blew my mind. I was like, really? I can't believe people would ask to go to Ikea. But listen, I love Ikea, but I don't know if I would want to make it like a lunch destination. But mm. I guess if you have kids, you know, you can let them run around and have fun and everything. And you get some cheap meatballs. and then, or what, I'm sure they serve other things, but obviously they're best known for meatballs. Mm-hmm. Um but it's interesting, too, because they, they make... So in 2017, the company made $2.24 billion from food sales in the cafeteria. That is not like... I bet the margins are good as well. Yeah, the margins are really good. So apparently, there is an article that we'll link to in Fast Company um, where Gerd Devald, I'm going to assume... Sorry. I'm going to assume is his name. I apologize for pronunciation, obviously. He was the former head of IKEA Food Operations, told Fast Company... We've always called the meatballs the best sofa seller. Mm. When you feed them, the customers, they stay longer. They can talk about potential purchases and they make a decision without leaving the store. So I assume there is some serious debate happening around Mm. 
should we get this? Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to like make up a name for. I don't want to offend Swedish no, people. No, do should we get this bookcase or that furniture. one? Let's go with that. This bookcase or that bookcase. Well, apparently Ingvar Kamprand was uh, widely known for saying you can't Hermes. do business with someone on an empty stomach. So it was actually his yes. idea. The install cafe was actually his idea. I yes. read somewhere that they sell more than one billion Swedish meatballs each year. I mean, that's a lot of Swedish meatballs. Oh, it is. A and lot. I gotta be honest, like it, it's it's makes me curious. According to the company's research, thirty percent of its shoppers come into the stores just to eat. Imagine how busy an IKEA is on a weekend. Mm. Three out of ten of those people are just there for the meatballs, like out of my face furniture, no more. And it's it's, it's the price again. There's an element of price, quality mm-hmm. versus price. I think it's it's cheap. It's cheap food. It is indeed. Um, it's not. I mean, it's not the best quality. I think there's a there's a, a quote here from a guy uh, Dimitros Dimitrios. He lives in New York City. Visited IKEA. Did a, called the food surprisingly decent. It falls somewhere between cafeteria food and actual restaurant quality. Oh. But nonetheless, my salmon fillet platter cost me six dollars ninety nine. <laughs> so there's a that's a not bad. A key thing there. There's also I think you know they 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 bake as well. And there's there's quite an interesting question once you get into like smell as a sense yes as well which is quite an interesting thing that you can create nice smells and good smells which is why in a bakery they always pump the smell mm-hmm. of bakery into supermarkets and all that kind of stuff isn't it Makes it smells happy. amazing yeah yeah throw an element of that in there as well but i think you're right that you know, as, as a way of driving people into the store and mm-hmm. keeping them there and keeping them thinking it's a really smart move yes agreed um did you have anything else you wanted to kind of cover off from a psychology perspective? Because I think there's, there's a few other sort of... There's a few other things. I mean, I think the other sort of memorable thing about mm. going to Ikea is the fact that, like, you're in this maze that you can't escape. <laughs> you, I mean, you can escape it. If there is an emergency, you can get out of there. Like, there are places to cut off the different sort of ways that you go through an Ikea. But basically, there's, there's two features of the store layout that are, I think, very conducive to, like, a business environment. Mm-hmm. So, like, their retail experience. One is the one-way system, and the second is the circular design. So, like, if you go into an Ikea, they've got the little arrows on the floor that you follow around and you do, you know, kind of like the plan. And there's, it's, an Ikea is big. It's as, an average Ikea is 300,000 square feet. It is the size of five American football fields. That's a lot. So, if you go into a store and let's say you're walking by the lamps and you know that this is a one-way system and you know that you're going to have to walk... Mm. Five American football fields. I mean, hundreds of thousands of feet or whatever it is. Uh, it's a hike. Uh, if you don't put this lamp in the cart yeah. and, and just sort of overcome your objections for this like five pound lamp mm-hmm. and put it in the put it in the cart, um, that drives a lot of a lot of sales. consequence. Yes. It's this yeah. idea of um, scarcity. So yeah. so Cialdini. So Robert Cialdini is a professor who wrote a book called Influence, which you should read if you have not. Um, he said, when our freedom to have something is limited, the item becomes less available and we experience an increased desire for it. I would say when our freedom to have something is limited by the fact that we're going to have to walk for 25 minutes to get it again, <laughs> um, our increase, our desire increases tenfold because really I don't want to, I don't want to do all of that. But um, yeah, so this idea of, you know, Ikea stores using this one-way traffic system, mm. creating that feeling of scarcity, and this design sort of forces people to put any item that kind of catches their eye into the cart. And if you're like me, you have quite a bit of shame of, you know, that the next 10 feet to the cash register, and you're like, I don't really want this lamp, but I don't want to walk all the way back. Yeah. But I don't want to have all these people see me put this and lamp And it's cheap here. enough that I don't have to. And it's $5. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's worth the embarrassment to just put it down. But this idea then is once it's in the cart, you're much mm. less likely to like change your mind. Yeah. 
Um, and that is down to something called the endowment effect. Now, there, there's a few, there's like loss aversion, a few different things. The endowment effect is interesting in that it says or states that people place a higher value on items that they own or they intend to buy. And what yeah. I mean by intend to buy is basic. And look, I mean, this. it depends on the product and everything. Mm -hmm. But if you put something in your cart, on some level, it's a pair of shoes. You're imagining the outfit that you're going to wear this pair of shoes with. Maybe it's a party. Maybe you'll meet somebody at that party. Maybe you're going to have a good time. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're going to dance. You're going to drink. Oh, my God. Life would be perfect if just I could have these shoes to go with this outfit. And and this idea sort of creates like an emotional bond. So this like future imagined, mm -hmm. you know, experiences with this product are, you know, something that I want to experience. And, in fact, the research was done with uh, Duke University basketball mm -hmm. tickets, the UNC Duke game, mm. if anyone is a – American college basketball fan is a wild time mm -hmm. and the tickets go for a lot of money um, and you usually have to be put into a lottery system. So mm -hmm. again, our, our dude, uh, Dan, mm -hmm. uh, our predictably irrational friend, he is the one who did a lot of this experimentation and, you know, was at Duke University. So he knew that Duke UNC was mm -hmm. quite an event. Um, UNC, and for those who don't know, the University of North Carolina. University of North Carolina, where I went to high school, weirdly. Mm -hmm. So okay. um, <laughs> went to high school at the university. That's a long story. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, uh, but yeah, so it, this idea that like once you start imagining what a good time you're going to have at the game, you say, okay, well, I'll give you these tickets, but I'm going to give you these tickets for $10,000 as opposed to somebody who, um, you know, maybe never had had them in their hand and never yeah. had thought about or made plans or do whatever. I'll give them to you like for $1,500, yeah, $2,000. Yeah. yeah, and this is what they're prepared to pay versus what they're prepared to sell for. Exactly. If they haven't got it and they have got it. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, there's a couple of interests sort of quite – simple things as well one of the things that i find with with ikea is if i want something today i know i can get it and if my car's big enough <laughs> mm -hmm. i can get it home yeah a lot of stores especially if i'm buying online uh or a lot of stores in general furniture stores in general they don't necessarily c carry the stock with them you have to order it and wait for it to be delivered and all those kind of things so if you have a sudden panic situation that you need a futon don't know why you'd have a panic. You need a food. Listen, maybe you have in-laws coming in, maybe and you, you have no place to put them, and all but, the hotels are full. But that that Emergency that ability to sort of frictionless thing—it's not frictionless because you've got to go and get it. But mm -hmm. you have you've got less hurdles almost to jump over to get that thing into your house mm -hmm. um, in an immediate sense, which I think is really important. From a marketing perspective, I think they they do some really interesting things. They've been with the same agency for a very very long time, like more mother. than five years. Mother. 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 Sorry. Okay, I can't um, do it without thinking about that Darren Aronofsky. Yeah, mother. Mother. Um, there's a film I'm never watching. It looks absolutely bonkers. Anyway. Um, but the idea that they've stuck with this agency for a, for a very long time. So that agency now knows now knows them yeah. and they know the agency. They know not to mess with certain things. So yeah. they have brand codes that they don't mess mm -hmm. with colors and fonts and, you know. They're also the, just the a Swedish really great flag, agency. obviously, blue and, blue yeah. and yellow. And, you know, there that are helps. there are things that make IKEA, uh, IKEA's branding iconic mm -hmm. that they don't touch. Yeah, that font, you mm -hmm. know, is, is always, uh, is always the same. Um, they've stuck with the same tagline now since about 2017, which is the wonderful everyday. So the goal behind that was to inject joy into daily scenarios. You know, that IKEA can help. Mm -hmm. in, in, injecting joy sounds weird, but anyway, that um, <laughs> God, that 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 kind of Inserting consistency, <laughs> Jennifer. I'm just trying to think of different ways of saying injecting joy. <laughs> Consistent, that kind of consistency, I, I think, is, is something that is, is, I think, missing in a lot of 
places. You know, people yeah. want to chop and change. Yeah, yeah. New marketing director comes Consistency in. Consistency is very you know, important. And playing with brand codes is also incredibly yes. important. And I think when we talked about that, um, the print stuff, which I'll be honest, I don't know if Mother did that or not. They because did. they're the above the line. Agents. The sleep stuff, yeah. They did the sleep stuff. Okay, cool. Because it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, where they've got, you know, like, I don't know how to describe it exactly, like nighttime products that are turned into other products, mm-hmm. like a duvet that's like in a big yeah. thing of like sleep cream or whatever. So the, the, the tagline for it was tomorrow starts tonight. Yeah, which is So great. it was it was like uh, a pill bottle open with naturally natural supplements and it's pillowcases that's spilling out. Um, mm. There's um, a, a, a jar of uh, the most natural anti-aging remedy and it's got a duvet in it. Mm-hmm. But it looks like cream coming out of the. We'll yeah. post the links to the to the images. But I think that's they do some really smart stuff. And you look at it, and you know instantly it's IKEA. Yeah. Um. So I think that consistency and the brand codes, all that stuff, the, the fluency that they build up as a brand is really mm-hmm. important. And the other thing I think that they're doing at the moment is they're trying to. They're investing. They're trying not. They're not standing still. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I was reading an article where, again, I'll post it for Marketing Week, and they're talking about the things that what they're investing in right now. So they're trying to improve their, their digital presence mm-hmm. and their website and delivery and all it that It could be better. It's, it's not terrible, but it could be better. No. Everything could be. Um, they're trying to improve their delivery options. And I've always thought IKEA delivery is pretty good, but they're mm-hmm. trying to get that even better. Um, and the show showrooms. So obviously, uh, a lot most IKEAs, because of the absolute monstrous scale of them mm-hmm. right out of town or in you know out of town retail parks or, mm-hmm. or whatever have you but in places like new york city and what have you they're bringing in showrooms into city centers yeah because you used to have to travel exactly which i think is really clever and then tie that into the digital yeah. and delivery stuff um and they've know. even said that we you know we're expecting lower profits over the next few years because we're going to be heavily investing in this mm-hmm. which i always think is a sign of a a good brand that transparently comes out and says we need to over invest here mm-hmm. and we're going to do that mm-hmm. which i think is also uh also really really kind of a smart thing smart thing for them um the one other thing i thought we talked about the store environment was it creates a context most stores furniture stores mm-hmm. and i could be talking out to him i haven't bought furniture for a while um ikea shows the products in context they mm-hmm. set up a fake kitchen they set up a fake living room they mm-hmm. set up a fake bedroom whatever mm-hmm. it is and then they show how those products can sit within a context give mm-hmm. you design ideas all those sort of things and obviously you're walking past them on the one-way system of doom so mm-hmm. which should be a travel later i think um or at least there should be lanes for slow walkers and fast walkers because my god anyway um <laughs> the the idea of that context i think is really important because it allows your brain to see something and, and, and give you some some ideas which i think is also mm-hmm. uh really crucial so we've covered a lot of things there, a lot of practical things, a lot of brand things, mm-hmm. a lot of psychological things that make IKEA uh, as successful as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the one <laughs> thing I would say is having put up this uh, this article and gotten a lot of um, feedback, there was some there was some mean feedback about IKEA. I know. There were some things that people don't like about IKEA. Mostly it has to do with their environmental footprint. Um, yeah. Environmental footprint. There we go. If I can enunciate um, which I think, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's maybe worth kind of using to, to tie this up a little bit. And that, that I think is, is not something they've come out and said, like, you know, we, we want to address, though they mm-hmm. have talked about sustainability a lot. So, like, I think what they're doing in, in true brand style is kind of looking to the future and, mm-hmm. and thinking about things like their recycling or buyback schemes. Yes, we're going to forgot to mention that. We um, talked about that the other week, didn't we? Yeah, more... we talked about that in a, in a 
different podcast, yeah. but this idea that, you know, you can you can bring in old furniture and they'll take mm-hmm. care of recycling it and do all that, and then they'll give you credit towards new furniture, mm-hmm. I think, is really good. Uh, but, yeah, sustainability has become a real uh, tenet of the brand yeah. kind of moving forward. So that's why, <clears throat> excuse me. I have a lot of getting a lot of these comments on the articles. Like, well, it's a similar kind of concept to the fast fashion thing, isn't it? In, in yeah. terms of cheap fashion, so if you're a Primark or whoever it is, mm-hmm. and, um, I don't know who the equivalent would be in in America, but if you're a brand that's selling really cheap stuff that's H&M, disposable, I mean, that's not great. You know, yeah. from a, from the of, I guess the furniture equivalent of that, isn't it? Um, but they do a lot of other things, you know, focusing on diversity in their advertising and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. They're making some improvements there. They're so making think... some some good strides forward. So, <clears throat> again, like, I think any discussion around Ikea, like, you do have to acknowledge the fact that, like, because they are the world's largest furniture brand and because of the nature of the cheap furniture, mm-hmm. self-assembled, all of that, it, it I think it is an obvious critique. Mm-hmm. I mean, no offense to these commenters. Like, mm-hmm. they weren't exactly trolling. I think they were making a good point. Yeah. But like what a hot take ikea wastes a lot of furniture and i think they get it they've acknowledged it and they're they're really changing and make some making some good improvements kind of moving forward so that's good so that's it for this episode of everybody hates your brand we hope you enjoyed it you can find show notes resources and more episodes on our website everybodyhatesyourbrand.com but before we go let's leave on a positive note and let's share what we're loving right now so rob what you got this week well, I found an article that pops up into one of my uh, many and varied sort of feeds. Um, Forbes magazine, written by a chap called Dr. Augustine Fu. Fou? Fu? F-O-U. Anyway, uh, he's a digital marketer of 25 years, uh, and very pointedly he says at the end of his bio, now I audit campaigns for fraud. Oh, my. Uh, and the headline is called, How FOMO and FOFO. What is FOFO? We'll come to that. Sapped marketers' budgets. So what he's talking about is obviously the massive expansion in social and in digital display and, and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and the idea that we've talked about the, this idea before, that we are as a, as, a, as a discipline magpies for shiny new things. We like, we like the new and we like the shiny and people start jumping onto new things and what have you. And they, you know, fear of missing out, the FOMO part is it's about that. It's mm-hmm. about people who are kind of buying ad tech, or as he describes it, ad tech snake oil. From programmatic ads placed on millions of long tail sites to privacy invasive surveillance marketing where tons of data are gathered for the purpose of hyper targeting ads, one fool's gold after another. Regarded, resulting in what I consider to be a lost decade of digital marketing. Mm. So he's quite, uh, he's quite, and obviously this guy spent a lot of time investigating fraud, a lot of the clicks anyway that you get on mm-hmm. real Bots and etc. etc. Et yeah. It's a really interesting talk. And he gets some really interesting further readings of, of, the problems with that. But the one I thought was really in- interesting when we talk about psychology was FOFO. FOFO. So FOFO, fear of finding out. Uh-oh. So the fear of finding out bit is that that, that there's a kind of inertia created um, by people who maybe realised, and they've invested in all this stuff, maybe realised now that mm. it isn't working, mm. that they don't want to embarrass themselves it's or a sunk cost fallacy sunk cost fallacy sunk exactly cost fallacy. exactly this idea that i've spent so much of my own emotional mental mm-hmm. sort of um capital yeah. i've also spent probably a lot of money from an and age, a lot of political capital. perspective and, and those kind of things yeah but actually i can't now say actually i'm kind of made a 
cataclysmic mistake. Um, so it said the same fear of finding out is now keeping many marketers from looking more closely at the efficacy of their digital marketing, uh, digital programmatic spending. It would be embarrassing if they found out that it was less effective than originally promised by the ad tech companies. It would be embarrassing to find out the fraud detection tech they used didn't find most of the bots and other forms of fraud that weren't bots. It would be embarrassing to find out that 100% viewable inventory came from sites that tricked the detection instead of real mainstream publishers that didn't cheat. So there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff mm. where he talks about this idea now that almost there's a level of inertia that is people throwing good money after bad. And this that's the yeah. same cost fallacy is keeping people spending money. It's a really interesting article and it's got some really interesting links out uh, for extra reading. So I'll, I'll post it in the... Um, and, and in this world of confirmation bias, it played into my confirmation bias about programmatic. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a tough there one. Is that. There is that. What did you have, Jen? Um, so I'm going to do a little bit of shilling because you know what, what is good, what good is it to have a podcast? You know, it's never, it's never beneath you to, to shill stuff. Listen, don't punish me for (laughs) marketing. Trying to make a living, man. (laughs) Yes. Marketing what I spend every weekend and evening doing. Um, so yes. So some of you might know, some of you might not, why I keep banging on about behavioral science and psychology and all that stuff is because I, I have or wrote a book called Choice Hacking, um, mm-hmm. which the aim of which is to kind of educate people on the fundamentals of behavioral science that we've talked about a little bit. Um, there's some frameworks in there and some things, and it's it's been really well received. It's sold mm-hmm. a bunch of copies. Yeah. I mean, it's for me. I mean, I've read it, obviously. It's a good book. A lot of people have reached out and, and said some really, really nice things. But there is a website for Choice Hacking, which was recently, I'm by recently, I mean over the last couple of weeks, into the evening and... <laughs> Mm-hmm. all over the weekends um retooled and and repositioned by me um and so now choice hacking like we do we're lucky enough like look i have thousands of people on the mailing list mm-hmm. i get to talk to like every week when i send out the emails and things and they all have nice things to say and one of the things that people were asking for and i really saw a need for was more content so now we are i'm so excited to share mm-hmm. that the website has now pivoted we are now in a membership model mm-hmm. we have a course coming out in january um, a lot of really exciting things. So if you are someone who deals with customer experiences, mm-hmm. so that might be a digital experience or a physical retail experience, if you're a marketing manager, if you are someone who works in startups as an entrepreneur, just basically wants to figure out the difference between what people say and what they do, mm-hmm. and to use behavioral science and psychology to do that, um, then you should check out choicehacking.com. You should check out, we have a monthly membership, um, which is really great, it's seven ninety nine a month. US dollars, apologize, that's just how we did it. Um, and you can go in, you can get access to what we call the content vault. You can have, um, eventually we will set up like an exclusive Facebook group once we get to um, a few dozen people. And a, a lot of sort of exclusive content and stuff that I put on there where I, we go into things like we went into today, where we talk about psychology behind uh, brands and use cases and fundamental principles. And people still seem to really enjoy it. I really like doing it, it's fun. Um, we also have an annual membership that'll get you um, free access to all the courses uh, mm-hmm. that we have. And at the moment, we have two. We have a customer journey mapping course, um, which also is across my other website. And then we've got the new one that's coming out, How to Create Persuasive Experiences, mm. um, in January. So, yes, I'm shilling. I apologize. Sometimes, listen, you put a lot of work into something. Sometimes the yes, thing that you love this you week really have. is a thing that you did. Yes. And what good is it having a podcast if I cannot use it to shamelessly... <laughs> direct people to my projects well you did it you've wasted another perfectly good half an hour or so with rob 
and Jen and the Everybody Hates Your Brand podcast. Again, you can find us on everybodyhatesyourbrand.com and your podcast platform of choice. Have a week. Take great, great care and be vigilant.